Nobody knows when the first mirrors were invented. Some say thousands and thousands of years. We have as far back as the 10th century before Christ, black pieces of obsidian rock, which are parts of lava flow that have been polished off through which a person can see their image. As early as the 7th century before Christ, the Chinese were already making mirrors even out of glass and using them to count the stars. By the time Jesus was born in this world, most of the mirrors were made close to where Jesus grew up. There was a little city called Corinth, and they were famous for making polished bronze mirrors. They shipped them all over the world. Now, being bronze instead of glass, they could be warped. They could be uh, bent or scuffed, and it always changed the image of what you saw. You saw a reflection, but it wasn't a very good one. As far back as the mid-1600s after Christ, mirrors became wildly popular. They were making them in factories all over Europe of different qualities and shipping them all over the world. History says that at one point it costs three times as much to buy a mirror as it did to buy a painting. And yet people that were wealthy were putting mirrors inside of their homes, putting them in parlors on the wall on the side. They were putting them in churches, in little grottos. They were putting them inside of parks. What nobody knew was that by installing mirrors, it would fundamentally change the way each one of us would see ourselves we would start determining our worth and our appearance by what we saw ourselves when we looked in a mirror. Prior to that, you didn't know much what you looked like. You depended on what other people said about you to determine your self-esteem or self-worth. In the 1600s, when they put mirrors inside of parks, one of the observers said, it is remarkable when you pour water in front of one mirror, a thousand waterfalls appear, when in reality, there is only one. But each mirror simply returns to the others the image it receives. One historian observed by saying, the simplicity of the real was lost inside the complexity of the artificial. This is a house of mirrors. It's where most of us live. Even though we can look at ourselves in a mirror and draw conclusions about ourselves, the truth is the conclusions that we draw are mostly reflections of what other people think about us. We only return to those people the image that we ourselves have received. Now, in some cases, that was handed to you by your parents. 
In some cases, it's handed to you by your immediate family. Sometimes it's the place where you work. Sometimes it's your friends. It's the competition. It's the enemy. Each one of them casts an image of you onto you, and often all we do is return to them the image that they have given us. The real self is lost inside the complexity of the artificial. Jesus spoke of being authentic. Paul, when he was writing to that church in Corinth where the mirrors were made, finished 1 Corinthians 13 by saying, for now we look into a looking glass. The word literally is a mirror. We look into a mirror, en enigmati. We look into a mirror and see a riddle. It's a poor reflection of who God is. But he said the day is coming when we will look directly at God himself and see who he is when all other mirrors are silent. And he is more than just everybody else's words and images times 10. He is real in front of us. Then Paul says, we will know fully, wait for the rest of it, and only then will we be fully known. In between now and then, we will sit here bouncing back onto others the image that they have passed on to us. We will live in a house of mirrors until the day when we see Christ. And then when we see him, the real human, we will see ourselves. Hallelujah. <laughs> That's amazing. It teaches me something. We cannot know who we are until we know who God is. Let me say that again. You cannot know who you are until you know who God is. You never discover yourself by looking at yourself. Because the Bible says you are created in God's image. What that means is you are a reflection of who God is. So you never know who you are when you're just looking at yourself. And you don't know who you are when you look at somebody else's reflection onto you. You only know who you are when you know who God is. Then when you know who God is, you have a chance to know who you really are. I mean the real God, not the one that you see through a glass darkly. Not the one confused by preachers and books and philosophers and theologians. I mean the real God, that one. When you see him, then the real you will start to emerge. How? 
how does God get us to that point? Because until he does, we will take fallen images of ourselves and we will project them up onto God and make idols. And we will make them either out of our ambitions or out of our deficiencies. And we'll soup them up and make some version of God that works for us. But it isn't him. How does God strip us of our idols so that we can see the only real God? Enter Abraham. Was not ready for this. Abraham is living in the land of Haran. He is 75 years old. He is married. His wife has no children. He has a nephew and he probably has some servants. And the way that God will teach Abraham who he is, is to put Abraham in a situation where his image of God must change or he will crack. It's a high risk. Think about it. Why does God not just come to Abraham in Haran and confront bad theology with good theology? Why does he not just say, I'll teach you right here all the things where you got wrong and who I really am. Abram, you worship the moon god. I am the moon god and the sun god. I am the god above all gods. Why does he not just say that to him while he is living in Haran? Instead, he insists on removing him from the only thing that is familiar to him and putting him in a predicament. He says, when Abram is 75 years old, get out. Literally, that's the translation. Get out. Leave your country, your people, and your father's house. The Bet Ab. As a wandering nomad, you had no security greater than your father's house. I'm asking you to, I'm not asking you, I'm telling you, you have to leave your country, leave your people, and leave your daddy's house. And go, well, I'll tell you later. I will make you into a great nation and I will bless you. I will make your name great and you will be a blessing. Whoever blesses you, I will bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. And all of the world will be blessed because of you. Now get out. Two observations. One, God is the one giving the order but Abraham is the one that's got to do it. I don't suspect this happened in a day. I think it happened over weeks. 
I think there was a process whereby Abraham disentangled himself from all of those cultural strings that tied him to the system that he knew so well. But everything God is going to do for him, I will make you a nation, I will make your name great, and I will protect you, will happen after Abram leaves, not here in Haran. It will happen in the land I will show you. It will not happen in the land that you already know. That's critical. Two, this is a change not only in Abram's identity, his country, his people, or their ways, their culture, and his father's household is deeply rooted in his identity, but it is also a change in his religion. Because in a polytheistic culture, all of these entities had gods. They had hierarchies. They had gods for every facet of creation. They had gods for every part of the country. And so families, tribes, and clans had gods like families today have patron saints. We knew that there were other gods or other saints, but there's always one God who can broker for us a deal with all of them. So you never prayed to God. You prayed to the God who was in charge of the thing you wanted changed. But there was one God who could negotiate that change for you. And that God changed from country to country and from family to family. And so the call to leave your country and to leave your family is not a call to just leave your identity. It is a call to leave your religion. And follow you know not what. Abram, you can not worship your daddy's God. It's not that your daddy's God is flawed. It's that your daddy apprehended God in a certain way. And when you try to worship your daddy's God, you end up in a suit of armor that doesn't fit you. It's not authentic. It's not you. So you will have to put down the religion that you grew up with in order to find a bigger, larger religion. And when you do this, oh, your daddy, your mama, and all their friends are going to resist this. They're going to swear that you're leaving the faith, that you're becoming a prodigal, that you're laying down some of the things that mark our family's traditions. But Abram, you cannot find the real God inside your daddy's home. Your daddy had God. You must find your own. 
You can trust him. Please don't write me an email this week. Some of you have started already. Why'd you say that my kids should not be following my religion? Because your religion doesn't fit your kid. It don't work. Same God. But he has to appear to your kids the way that he appeared to you. Because he don't have grandkids. He has kids. He doesn't triangulate when he talks to people. He just talks to people. So this is a declaration of freedom so that your children may go and find the true living God. But I warn you, this is a place of dissonance. It's a place of high uncertainty. Everything is moving. All you know is that you're not supposed to be here, but you don't know where you're supposed to go. The distance between Haran and Shechem, where he built the altar. In other words, the distance between verse 4 and verse 6 is 400 miles with a clan in a caravan in the desert. This isn't happening in an afternoon. It's not happening in a month or in two months. This is a long journey, and all the while it's happening, you still don't know where you're going. Now imagine you run into Abraham in between, and you say, where are you going? He says, I don't know. Well, then how are you going to know you've arrived when you get there? All I know is God spoke to me. You say, what? We have gods, but they never speak. They don't even know we exist. They never look at us. And you say that a God actually spoke to you and he gave you an order to leave and you're going to do that? Yes. So where are you going? I have no idea. Well, then why did you leave? Well, because God told me to leave. Well, why didn't he tell you what he wants to tell you where you were living? I don't know. How you know you're going to like it when you get there? Maybe I won't. But if I don't leave, I'm going to like that even less. Have you ever been there? You haven't? Holy cow. High uncertainty. It is in this moment that I believe the soul begins to ask a question. Sometimes we can't articulate it, but it sounds something like this. Who's going to look out for me? Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to make sure that I'm going to be all right? Who's going to go with me? Who's going to make it safe? Who do I have in this world? Because the only religion 
I had, I left. And now, in between, I got nothing. I believe it is in this moment we default to two options. It's like we come to a fork in the road right here. And, and, and at a fork in the road, we are looking for something way back there called security. Who's going to take care of me? Who's going to look out for me? How do I know that I'm going to? How do I know it's all going to work out in the end? And all of a sudden, God calls us to do something and leave behind everything that is familiar and safe and reasonable and manageable, everything that I know how to do. He's calling me to set it down. And at this moment in the fork that is in the road, we can go one of two ways. And one of them is the way of a slave and the other one is the way of a child. Abraham will do both in the next two scenes. The very next scene in Genesis chapter 12 is after Abraham has marched all around the land that God gave him and set up altars wherever he went. That's interesting, isn't it? He's marking the territory with the new strange God I've never heard of before. After he does this, there's a famine. Something goes wrong. Abraham goes walking into Egypt with his wife. And on the way to Egypt, he says to Sarah, now when we get there, uh, the Egyptians are going to think you're a very beautiful woman. So when they think you're beautiful and they want you, they're going to kill me. So why don't you tell them that you are my sister? Wait for the language. Ladies, you're going to love this. Tell them you're my sister because then it will be all right for me. My life will be spared because of you. Now I know what the men are thinking is, what a wuss. <laughs> are you serious? You're going to subject your wife to that so it may go well with you? This is exactly what he does. They get into Egypt, and she says, this is my brother. He says, this is my sister. Pharaoh notices she is striking. Pharaoh takes her into his palace. Pharaoh marries her. <laughs> and all of a sudden, that's when the trouble starts. The Egyptians start breaking out with infectious diseases, and they can't figure this out. And one of the magicians must have put it together and said, you know, the timing's pretty awkward. About the time of the wedding, we got trouble. So Pharaoh goes to Abram and he says, why did you lie to me about your sister? I mean, your wife. I mean, your, what is she anyway? Now watch what he says next. Take your wife and get out. And before you leave, here's a bunch of stuff. Abraham's thinking, it worked. <laughs> this is the way 
of control. I come to a fork in the road and God says, I want you to do something that is unfamiliar. It feels unsafe. It is unmanageable. You don't know what's going to happen next. I have given you no guarantees. Your soul says, who will take care of me? How do I know I'll be all right? And you default to the way of control. When we control people, we try to do things that God is supposed to do. When we control, we try to determine the outcomes, the speed, and the performance of everybody involved. When we control, we advise, we manipulate, we counsel, but we counsel before we have listened closely because we we need fast, easy closure. When we control, we cannot resonate with another person's suffering for very long because it reminds us of our own vulnerability. How forces that no one can control can affect my life and nobody can stop them. When we control, we criticize and we blame because we cannot make other people perform up to our expectations. When we control, we are easily frustrated and angry when things don't go our way. We try to overpower the opposition. We refuse to accept what just happened. There must be a culprit. He must be found. He must pay. We must fix this. Because if I fix it, I will be okay. I have somebody looking out for me. I know I will like it if I just control people. When we control, we appear to be so much more powerful than we really are. The truth is our soul is fragile and it is afraid. And we can be very religious while we do this. And the way religious people do this is they simply grab a promise that God has made and they attach it to a picture of the future that they have in their minds of what that promise will look like when he's finally fulfilled it. And then we hold God to his own promises. We claim it. I demand in Jesus' name you not only do what you said you would do, but that it looks like this when you're done doing it. That's control. That's religious control. <laughs> it is the way of a slave. There's one more way. In the other chapter, the next chapter, Abraham goes out walking into the fields. He has Lot, his nephew, with him. And while they look out over the plains, Abram looks at Lot and says, you know, your clan and my clan are fighting. Let's put this aside. 
Let's separate. One of us will go to the east, one will go to the west. Now wait for it. Abram says, you choose first. (laughs) Did I tell you that all of the land Abram is standing on is the same land God promised him? If you're control, you simply say, Lot, God gave me this land, not you. You're a fifth wheel anyway. I'm going to choose first, and you get what's left over. But it's almost as if Abram has learned from Egypt that God can be trusted protecting things he said he would protect. And so when they look out over the land, Abram looks at Lot and says, There's a lot of good land here. You take your choice first in whatever you don't choose. Well, that's what I got. It's the way of trust. It's the way of trust. When we trust, we just venture out into the unknown because All we know is that God has told us to leave. And even though he has not told us where we're going, we know that God is good for it. And if for a little while, the place where God has called us seems like an unhappy place, we trust God's version of happiness more than we trust our own. And we simply say, whatever God has given me in this moment, I'm grateful for. We don't blame. We don't advise. We don't criticize. We accept what God has given us. No questions asked. fellow went to the... uh, convent in Calcutta some years ago to spend time with Mother Teresa. He spent a few days praying when he ran into Mother Teresa, finally went there to see her. She finally said, well, John, how can I pray for you? He said, pray that I have clarity. She said, why do you want clarity? He said, because... um, You always have clarity. You always seem to know where you're going. You always know what you want next. He said, Mother Teresa laughed and said, I have never had clarity. But I have always had trust. I will pray that you learn to trust. Church, trust is Wonderful clarity. (laughs) I think I'm talking to people this morning who uh, maybe are in a land in between. Some of you have moved here from other cities because you feel that God has called you to come. And yet the vision of what you thought you came for is not happening and it's not even close. you're beginning to ponder going back to Haran. Some of you are in situations that are far over your head. 
and you're strangling them with too much control. You're trying to measure all the next moves and what happens then in three or four consequences. You're five moves out. And you're living with a grip that I'm asking you this morning to consider letting go. I'm asking you to live in the moment. Live in a period of high uncertainty. Learn to be adaptable. Learn to be grateful when what is happening is not what you thought. So I give you these questions. Would you bow your heads? I want to give you a moment to process what you've just heard. First, what is God calling you to leave? What is he calling you to risk? Find it. Name it. Second, what do you fear might happen if you risk it? List your worst fears here. Third, if you were to risk it, what might be a good first step for you? Put that right here. And fourth, if you know or if you're stuck, who should you ask to help you? Who should you tell? Some of us We would trust him more if we only knew him more. But you know, in life, it works exactly the opposite. You never know him until you trust him. 
if you came to church this morning and you were kind of concerned, worried, maybe upset about being in a predicament that you don't like, it doesn't fit your vision of the good life, what God promised you, you might be resisting it and God might be calling you to settle down there in this land in between. And if you will risk being grateful at a time when you don't feel grateful, you will find a different God. You will know him when you trust him. Church, you can trust him. You can trust him. You can trust him.